This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. The San Diego Padres and Los Angeles Dodgers combined to paint a masterpiece last night in Chavez Ravine. Game two had more twists and turns than a Knives Out sequel and ended after three hours and 34 minutes of sheer delirium with the series level. Clutch hitting, steely nerve pitching, and extraordinary defense abounded at every opportunity. And it was easy, as a viewer, to get whisked away to that magical baseball place where you can close your eyes and feel every dip and dive of the roller coaster. It is impossible to watch and not notice just how incredible of a product the Major League Baseball playoffs are when two sides refuse to budge closer to elimination. And the energy and excitement was appropriately magnified by Adam Amin on Fox, who sounded as though he was having the time of his life with each highlight reel occurrence. Amin is one of the best broadcasters striding to a microphone these days so it should come as no surprise. Given the assignment of the most alluring matchup of the divisional round, with soon-to-be World Series voice Joe Davis working Atlanta, Philadelphia, Amin has risen to the occasion, particularly in the bottom of the sixth inning, when the Dodgers used back-to-back web gems to stay within one run. First, it was the armoire-shaped Bruzdar Greaterall showing the reflexes of a big cat to field a bunt by Trent Grisham and fire a submarine strike to cut down Will Myers at home plate. Do you like defense? Amin bellowed, channeling a new twist on a Russell Crowe classic. Because these two teams are putting on a clinic. He did it better than me. Scrolling through the real-time reactions on Twitter is dicey and depressing business, yet it remains the only imperfect lens. When you do that, you see some lunkheads chastising him for being too excited. They couldn't be more wrong and hopelessly lost. Because what you heard from Amin was a fan of the game being swept away by a river of authentic excitement. He didn't turn it up to 10 because he wanted to show off or make it about himself, a device that's far too common. No. This was a real moment of appreciation and joy, the type everyone should be feeling if they allowed themselves. Amin does the basic blocking and tackling so well that the explosions feel warranted and almost essential because trying to stay reserved wouldn't have done the game justice. Instead, he painted what needed to be painted, which was a tapestry of vibrant and almost neon colors. Perhaps his question was rhetorical. Let's answer it anyway. Yes, we like defense. Almost as much as we like that feeling of having that much fun late on a Wednesday, not knowing what was coming next around the next corner, yet tingling with anticipation nonetheless. A very important business daddy thought up the idea to promote House of the Dragon during game one of the American League Division Series between the Cleveland Guardians and New York Yankees and it required some significant buy-in from the broadcast booth. If there was any pushback to pretending a CGI dragon was real, it was not strong enough to prevent the on-air manifestation. Here's Bob Costas and Lauren Shahadi making the best of the unusual fit, which was not well-received online. Then again, is anything? Now, you know, big sellout crowd here, but we weren't 100% sure this game was gonna be played tonight. And for more, it's shocking. Here's Lauren Shahadi. Guys, thank you so much. Wild stuff. Here's what we know. Apparently, one of the stars of HBO's House of the Dragon has decided to take in a ball game here in the Bronx. Officials are hopeful that the dragon won't breathe fire during gameplay, but we'll see if he complies. By the way, House of the Dragon is streaming on HBO Max. If you want to check it out, back to you. You know, I kind of feel like Orson Welles in War of the Worlds. Maybe we're actually frightening some gullible people. That some Rodan-like 
creature is hovering over Yankee Stadium. Do not be alarmed, folks. Was this at all necessary? Did it add anything? No. Except giving Costas the opportunity to drop both an Orson Welles and a Rodan reference in the span of a few seconds. You don't see that very much. But I say, so what? People didn't like it because they actually noticed it, as opposed to the hundreds of other reads for upcoming shows that they ignore. Think long and hard about the last time you were actually engaged with a plug for something coming up later. Was it before or after The Mentalist was the hottest show on television? It takes something truly special to stand out. Pausing an extra beat while saying Murder, She Wrote just doesn't cut it. More on that in a minute. If the job is to capture attention, then the spot's mission was accomplished. And really, when you think about the actual stakes, which are just some people saying it was bad, it's a small price to pay in exchange for generating impressions and interest. Angela Lansbury, a star of screen and on Broadway, has died at the age of 96. She had a long and illustrious career, but will be best remembered for her portrayal of Jessica Fletcher, the intrepid mystery writer on Murder, She Wrote, which aired on CBS for 12 seasons in a primetime Sunday slot. This meant it was a part of countless promos during NFL football, many of them voiced by Pat Summerall, who led the network's coverage during the height of murder. Summerall had a distinct way of teasing the show, apparent to viewers who couldn't help but notice the long pause he'd take after the comma. Years later, John Madden would reveal that he and his broadcasting partner would bet on how long the silence would last. It was a silly thing they did to entertain only themselves, but as a kid watching at home, I remember looking forward to the bit and then grappling with the realization that it was about time to do that homework, which had been neglected until that point. Here's Madden reflecting on that experience back in 2013, and the time Gone with the Wind provided an even bigger punchline as the Sunday night movie. 60 minutes will be coming up following football, followed by murder, which she wrote. We're going to have bets on how long it's going to be between murder and she. And it got longer and longer. Then it's murder, she wrote. Starring Angela Lansbury. So we're doing a game, and uh, there's a movie uh, following the football. Followed by part one of a CBS Sunday night movie, Gone with the Wind. Starring Clark Gable and Vivian Lee. I laughed so hard, I had to take my headset off and go out in the hallway. That's right, kids. They used to put old movies on network television on the weekend, and it was a major event. Things used to be different. You used to get hyped for E.T. One wonders how many football fans never saw an episode of Murder, She Wrote, yet felt some connection to it. I know of at least one. All right, we got a big show for a Thursday. Liam and I are going to make our picks, try to do better. Sorry if we don't. You get what you pay for. And then I have an interview with Phil Sims, analyst on the NFL Today and Inside the NFL. We're talking Bills, Chiefs, the game of the century, the game of the millennium. He had some good insights about what these quarterbacks do that make them special and which way he's leaning. And as a programming note, we reviewed 38 at the Garden over on the big stream and Stephen and I really liked it. It's the Jeremy Lin story, but it's super powerful. It's tight. It's efficient. You can listen to that on the big stream wherever you listen to your podcasts. Let's get to it. Liam, I just sent you video of Eric Gregg's notorious performance behind the plate in Game 5 of the National League Championship Series back in 1997. Yes, that was a playoff game. I can see your eyes bugging out there. This wasn't just a regular season game. This was the then Florida Marlins against the Atlanta Braves. So much was on the line. And you are younger than me, and you have not seen it. So I just want to get your pure, unfiltered first impression of what was going on in that video, which I said is probably a top 100 internet clip. 
Uh, yeah, I didn't know it was a playoff game. I thought it was just one of baseball's many regular season humdrum kind of, you know, clips that got get forgotten to history unless it's a baseball history account tweeting out the video. The fact that it's a playoff game is insane. Uh, my initial reaction, as I expressed in our Slack work chat, was that I, the guy, that umpire simply had to have some money on Florida Marlins to win that game because that strike zone was simply a full foot to the left or to the right, depending on where your perspective is, a full foot off the plate. And I couldn't believe it. I had never seen anything like that. You see umps miss those calls once in a while, right? But to see it for two minutes and 15 seconds of consistent balls that are like six to 12 inches off the plate called strikes was truly astounding. I felt like I was watching a bit from like Nathan for you or something, you know, like it felt like a satire of a satire of what umpires are like. And you know what? The big lead has been at the forefront of capitalizing on umpires' mistakes, but none of them were as bad as that strike zone I just saw, and maybe we should be a little bit more appreciative about how far umpiring has come. I totally agree, and I remember watching it live, and the first couple, you're like, huh, that's weird, and then you realize that any left-handed batter that went up there would have needed a broomstick, and even in that case, some of them would have been unreachable. Right, Like you said, the funniest thing to me, and I will watch it every single time that it's posted, and I'll be like, I'm not going to laugh as hard as I did the last time. But the moment you see that it's two minutes and 15 seconds long is mind-blowing because it's like, how many of these calls are there? And they're just coming fast and furious. The fear and the uproar, if this happened in today's game, I can't even imagine it. Like, I think they would actually pull him from out behind home plate. I had to keep checking the video to make sure that I was reading 25 years ago today correctly. I'll be honest with you. I thought that it was going to, I thought it was a compilation for the first 45 seconds or so. And I think you're right. They would probably yank this guy out from back from home plate. And I think the most impressive part is that the Braves really kept their cool more or less. Like after the third or fourth strikeout of that caliber, especially since they were all called strikeouts too, that you'd think a Braves guy would like lose his mind to get tossed. And really there was only, I think if I remember right, there was only one guy who really got mad. Otherwise everybody just sort of accepted that they were going to get the shit out of the stick that day. And in a playoff game, that's uh, some cool temperament that I aspire after. Yeah. That's what it used to be like. Let's move on to football where we have cause for celebration as sad as it may be. We went 500 last week to keep our record at 10 games below 500. We are going to get there. I really believe it. It's not going to be an impressive showing at the end of the year, but I do not want to finish with a losing record. So let's get right to it. There's some picks that I like. For me, one that jumps out is the Seattle Seahawks getting three points against the Arizona Cardinals. The wrong team is favored here. The wrong team is favored here. Geno Smith is going to mess around and make the Pro Bowl. Did you have that on your bingo card entering the season? I do not think that you did. Meanwhile, the Cardinals are a study in what happens when you do not have a coach. When you put all the decision-making and put it all on Kyler Murray's plate coming down in the final quarter of the game, not a sustainable strategy. We saw the piece de resistance of such an experience with Kyler spiking the ball on third and one. I understand that the chains suggested that they got a first down. I don't like spiking the football. I think you give away a down far too often. And you only save a few seconds, but we're in a situation right here where one of these contracts is going to go down as an all time bad beat for the franchise that gave it to them. It's either going to be Russell Wilson who looks cooked in Denver, or it's going to be Kyler Murray, who looks like he might just not have what it takes to be a franchise quarterback in Arizona. And meanwhile, you have the Seahawks who are laughing all the way to the bank in the form of being a playoff contender. They have a good team. This offense is really good. Smith torched 
the Lions and you thought, okay, well, that's the Lions. And then he went out there and he did the same thing against the Saints, who supposedly have this above average defense. You have Rashad Penny, who's out into the void steps. My man, Kenneth Walker, the third, who I think is going to put up some bofo numbers going down the stretch here. I'm very excited. Uh, is it too late to win the rookie of the year? Probably, but he is going to turn some heads, a fantasy pickup if I've ever seen one. It's as simple as looking at these two teams and saying, which one do you trust the most? And at this point for me, it's Seattle. I'm done betting on Arizona and I can't believe that they're getting points in this scenario. It's especially astounding considering that this game is in Seattle. I mean, I know Russell Wilson isn't there anymore, but is the Seahawks fallen so far from grace that there's no three point underdogs at home. That's a big shock to me. And especially since the Cardinals, I mean, they hung with the Eagles, who are the only undefeated team left in the NFL. But, you know, situational football, like you just described, Kyle, is very uh, subpar in Arizona. They just really they should have scored more than 17 points against the Eagles. It wasn't like it was a game of two great defense grinding it out. It was a game of two inept offenses attempting to try to be the last one to score. And that's essentially what ended up happening. I. You know, we were banging the Seahawks drum last week. We did whiff on it slightly, but not by much. The Seahawks lost by seven when they were five and a half point dogs. I think that at home, it changes the equation completely, especially since the Seahawks have a tendency to show up for these divisional games unless they are against the San Francisco 49ers. This is against the Arizona Cardinals. There's no way that this, I mean, I just really have, I can't believe I'm saying it, but I currently have more faith in Geno Smith and Pete Carroll to put together a more comprehensive offensive game plan and succeed in that endeavor than I do in Cliff Kingsbury and Kyler Murray. And I said it last week, you got to fire Cliff to save Kyler Murray's career. It sounds dramatic, but it really isn't. The dynamic there is so weird because it seems like Cliff has been chasing Kyler for most of his adult life, even back to the teens. And now they're in the situation where they teamed up, they're joining forces. They should be on the same page. They don't be on the same page. I am so much looking forward to the inevitable book or documentary about what went wrong in the Kyler Murray experiment. I don't know if it's too early to say that I'm looking forward to it, but it seems more likely than not that it's going to be a long-term bust. One game I've got my eye on is... And this is a confusing line to me, considering the events of last week, is that the Saints are one and a half point underdogs against the Bengals, and the game is in New Orleans. Now, that isn't obviously a very tasty spread. Uh, there's not a lot of room for maneuver. It's basically a pick em game. But can any of you listeners look me in the eye, theoretically, if you were capable of doing that, and tell me that you think the Bengals are good enough to go into New Orleans and beat the Saints at home. I mean, the Saints just beat the Seahawks by, they put up 39 points against the Seahawks with Andy Dalton and Taysom Hill captaining the offense. They might actually get Jameis Winston back next week. Alvin Kamara has finally come back alive. The Bengals, meanwhile, scored 17 points against a Baltimore defense that had given up two gigantic leads in consecutive weeks. Now, I do think the Ravens defense got perhaps a little bit too much of the blame in those scenarios. But the fact of the matter is that the Bills and the Dolphins didn't really have that much trouble scoring against the Ravens when it mattered. And the Bengals absolutely did. Now, the Bengals look a lot better than they did in weeks one, week two. They began better each week, but they are still far from the Super Bowl contender that they were last year. Their team right now is average and average teams struggle to go into a strong home environment like New Orleans and win the game, especially when the weakness of Cincinnati's entire team is the offensive line and the strength of the Saints' entire team is their defensive line. I don't really understand how the Saints are underdogs here. I think that's pretty easy money to take. And, you know, even if it sounds crazy to say out loud that you are picking uh, either Andy Dalton slash Taysom Hill or Jameis Winston over Joe Burrow, There's more to it than the quarterbacks, as we have learned very well recently. And I think the Saints are not a very good team, but they're definitely better than being getting a dog line at home. I've been so underwhelmed by the Bengals 
beating the Dolphins with a backup quarterback didn't do anything for me. I think they had a game that they just totally gave away on Sunday night in Baltimore. The offense is a real problem. You, you hit the nail on the head. Joe Burrow has no time to throw. He has all these weapons out there that they are not utilizing. The coaching leaves a lot to be desired. It does not look like they will be returning to the Super Bowl. And it's not really a matter of Andy Dalton or Taysom Hill or Jameis Winston or Taysom Hill. It's and Taysom Hill. Like, finally, we finally saw the game that Sean Payton had on his dream board for so long as it was seventh and eighth grade football. You put the best athlete at quarterback. You say, hey, we're going to run the ball. And you just put this massive humanity in front of him. And you challenge the other team to come up and make tackle after tackle. I don't love Taysom Hill. But one thing I will say for him is that he is a problem and he is not fun. It is not enjoyable to tackle that man. He comports himself like a Jack Russell Terrier that's super hyper, that feels no pain. He lives for the contact. I think that you can wear this Bengals team down. I think that it's demoralizing to play for the Bengals right now. I think knowing that you went to such heights last year and that you're not going to return this year, I really worry about them mounting a comeback. I think if the Saints can get up early, it is the perfect storm of being able to run the football, especially as you mentioned Kamara coming back. That's going to make them so much more dynamic. They get a lead. They pressure the quarterback. They control the line of scrimmage. And this game kind of evaporates. That's the way I see it going down. And, and great point, too, about the real home field advantage. New Orleans, even when they're bad, is a really tough to pl- tough place to play. I think coming off that huge victory, the fans will be doubly energized, and it just seems like it has all the makings of the home team winning here. And again, it's a perplexing line. I know that the Bengals are probably going on brand recognition and the memories of what they did last year, but that is long in the rearview mirror. And I think that we need to assess these two teams for what they are right now. And honestly, they're very even. So give me the points, give me the money line. It just seems like in this battle, it's not sexy, but it's going to be the line of scrimmage. And you can put all these flashy playmakers you want in front of me, but if they're not given the ability and the opportunity to make plays, they're not going to do it. What a world we live in that the Bengals are getting points as a part of a brand recognition scheme. They have come a long way, but it's like you said, we got to evaluate them for what they are right now. And what they are right now are a pretty not so good team with a struggling offense and a defense that does not stop the run very well after DJ Reader got hurt a couple weeks ago when the Ravens decided to run the ball last week. They gashed them. The Saints are going to have no problem pounding the rock. In fact, they're even going to prefer it. I think that this is kind of a it's just a bad matchup for Cincinnati in a tough away environment a hostile environment even if joe burrow is comfortable down there i don't think the joe burrow fans are going to outnumber the nolans faithful speaking of brand recognition how about the dallas cowboys you ever heard of them they are discussed on the shows just a bit and they're being discussed because they are four and one and have the undefeated unbeatable Cooper Rush under center. We are living in Cooper Rush's world. Shout out Lansing. Shout out Central Michigan University. Fire up chips. Not only do I believe in the Cowboys, I like the Cowboys. And it is a weird and disorienting place to be. But this defense is, for lack of a better word, badass. Micah Parsons is doing things out there that suggest to me that he is some sort of alien life form that has been harnessed and taught to play football. He can line up at any position and impact the play. Game planning for him must be a nightmare. And then you really can't game plan for him because you say, if he's going to be over there, we're going to do this. If he's going to be over there, we're going to do this. But then you're adjusting to the specific offensive situation that you're in. And doing that calculus at the line of scrimmage just seems like an absolute nightmare to me. The Cowboys are getting five points as they travel to Philadelphia to play the undefeated and possibly unbeatable Philadelphia Eagles team. Jalen Hurts has been awesome. This offense has looked good. Like I said, though, I think they lucked out against the Cardinals because they were playing Kyler and Cliff. 
I think that that should have been an L. I think that these teams are very even. Five points is so much to give. If you know anything about the NFC East, it's that it has been unwatchable in recent years. But the bad teams do tend to rise to the occasion when they play the good teams. And the Cowboys aren't even a bad team. They're a very even team, giving a lot of credence to the home field advantage in this one. But we just saw Dallas go on the road. And granted, there were more Cowboys fans than Rams fans in attendance in Los Angeles. But they've just proven that they can win away from home and win significantly. I think that the Eagles offense will look very pedestrian I think that this will be a low scoring game and for all those factors if you're going to give me almost a touchdown in free pointage I have to take it the money line I did pick Dallas to win not a hundred percent sure about that but I think it will come down to the last two minutes either way and in that situation five points is more than a field goal by my remedial math so let's go with the Dallas Cowboys and if you want to get on the bandwagon you know like just take a shower Cleanse yourself of all the existing baggage that Jerry Jones and company have down there because it's really enjoyable to watch this defense suffocate opponents. And I don't think it's a fluke. I can't wait to have the discussion of whether you got to put Dak Prescott back in when he comes back healthy. Spoiler alert, you do, but it's going to be so fun. And just for Dallas to even be in that situation is, is found money and they keep it rolling here. The Cowboys are going to be in this game unless it turns into a shootout. That's when things will get dicey because Cooper Rush can hit the throws. Cooper Rush can convert the third downs. Cooper Rush cannot throw the ball 42 times, score 31 points, and still come away victorious, which is fine. Because, like you said, this defense is legit. Any worries about turnover regression have proven to be more or less unfounded. They are fast. They are athletic. They go after the ball. And most importantly, they have a superstar cornerstone in the form of Micah Parsons, who is as pure a game wrecker as there is in the NFL today. I do think that the Eagles are more like a 4-1 or even 3-2 team than they are a 5-0 team. That does not mean that they are not good, but... They are not quite as efficient offensively as they had shown early in the season. They can run into some problems there, and their defense has good players, is not quite good enough to save their bacon if the offense completely falls apart. Like you said, last week they got pretty lucky. That could have ended any sorts of ways that it had gone into overtime or if they even if the Cardinals had even handled that last two minutes to better. But ifs and buts don't make anything in the NFL – Uh, The Eagles are undefeated, and they will be defending their home turf with uh, energy, with excitement. These NFC East divisional games are rarely blowouts, and five points is a lot to give a pretty feisty Cowboys team, and especially one that has appeared to completely embrace the the us-against-the-world mentality and will be going into maybe one of the most hostile environments in the entire NFL for the Cowboys specifically, probably the most hostile. And they're going to be, it's going to be a, it's going to be a fun game, but I could definitely see it. Like you said, coming down to the last two minutes, uh, whether it's a two point game, three point game, four point game. I don't think that this is, this is going to be a blowout. And I don't think either team is going to pull away by more than a touchdown for the duration. Do you think that this offense is going to come back to earth as the season goes on? I'm speaking about Philadelphia because a lot of smart football people have pointed out that the offenses that it most resembles has kind of hit the wall come December when the weather gets a little bit colder, where teams start to figure out exactly what we're doing. We don't have a ton of data on how to defend this read option attack, but I have to think that other teams given 10, 12 weeks of film are going to figure out ways to stifle it. I think that all comes down to how much you believe in Jalen Hurts. I think that he has made big strides since last season. It has yet to be seen if he can, you know, really sit back there, do a drop back pass and complete passes over and over and over and over again to put up big points. The Eagles haven't really found themselves in any substantial holes this season. The one exception being the Jacksonville game in week three, I believe it was, where they went down 14, nothing, but that was halfway through the first quarter. They had three and a half quarters to figure it out from there. I do think that uh, the Eagles have been, 
you know, or have had their fair share of luck to start the year. That doesn't mean they're a bad team, but it certainly means that they're not going to be the second coming of the 2007 Patriots. And I think that both units are going to regress as time goes on a little bit here. One last thought on this. I kind of hate when the last undefeated team loses because the stupid Miami Dolphins of 1972 have to get out there and show their ass on Twitter and pop champagne. So if the Eagles win and continue to be unblemished in that loss department, you know what I mean? That's that's a positive in its own way, too. <laughs> Absolutely, it is. Love to rub it in the 1972 Dolphins face. But anyway, uh, I was looking at our post, and this one line in particular really stood out to me when I was writing it, and I've been thinking about it ever since we posted it earlier this week, and I'm still having some trouble believing that it is real. But the Minnesota Vikings are only three-point favorites against the Miami Dolphins this week in Miami, and we have no idea who's playing quarterback for the Miami Dolphins. This is one of those lines that makes you legitimately suspicious and worried about what the Vegas insiders might know that we do not. But regardless of that, let's say hypothetically, one of the three quarterbacks manages to get suited up to play, uh, maybe one of the two, you know, top two stringers, then I still like the Vikings. And even if it's in Miami, which I understand is a tough place to play for teams that come from the North, um, three points for a Vikings team, that has shown flashes of dominance does seem a little low. It feels like the Vikings should be anywhere from five to seven point favorites. And that's before you start getting into the fact that they might have, the Dolphins legitimately might have to start this guy named Skylar Thompson next week. I think that this is one of those things where you really got to hop on this quick if you want it. It's uh, We posted the our picks on Tuesday. By Wednesday, it's still, the Vikings are still at three point favorites. And it was worrisome, you know, for uh, especially for I believe on this podcast, I have expressed my love for Kirk Cousins this season a couple of times. But it was worrisome to see them let the Bears back into the game, but they did still end up shutting the door. And the Dolphins are a good team, but they're not a very good team unless they have Tua back there. And even when they have Tua back there, whether and how good they were was still. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Very much in question. This feels a little bit like we were talking about earlier. It's a reputation line about the fact that the Dolphins looked good to start the year. Tua had his one big game. So Vegas is giving them a little bit of respect earlier in the week, just in case Tua can suit up. If he doesn't suit up, this line is changing drastically in favor of the Vikings. And you just got to be quick on it. But either way, I think this is a multi-score victory for the Vikings. The Dolphins are still reeling from everything that happened over the last couple of weeks. The Jets dropped 40 points on the defense who didn't have their, you know, one of their superstars out. This is a team that is reeling right now. I do not see this being very close, even if Tua makes his epic return. Well, I know a few things in life, and one of them is if your starting quarterback is named Skyler, you got no chance. Don't feel bad about your love of Kirk Cousins because it pales in comparison to mine. I still think the Vikings are really good, and I still think that they're going to win this football game. Giving up three points is not so much. I mean, I like that there's not a hook on there right now because you win by a field goal. The worst that happens is you push. The biggest thing for me is not so much the Miami offense, as you talked about. It's the defense. 40 points to the Jets just can't happen. And say what you want about Captain Kirk and his deficiencies, which there are many. He is only human. The man loves Creed. The man loves well-done burgers on the shores of Lake Michigan. He's kind of like the good version of Tim Tebow. God bless him. But he can throw the football around, and he has Justin Jefferson on his team. He has Delvin Cook on his team. The offense has been really good. And more than that, they've found ways to win. I think 
Miami found ways to win early and their record is juiced because of that. And because of Tua's heroics and because of the heat playing on the surface of the sun against the Buffalo bills, but it does kind of feel like they were playing with a four leaf clover in their back pocket. And that clover has wilted and died 40 points, 40 to the jets. Like what is Minnesota going to do? I really don't bat an eye at them getting to 30 points. And there's just no way that the dolphins offense can match that no matter who goes out there and plays under center. Yes. They have the best receiving duo in the league, but it takes a quarterback to be able to exploit that. And if it's Bridgewater, we know exactly what we're getting. We're getting a game managed uh, experience where they're going to try to win 19 to 17. I still think the Vikings can win a game like that and they can win a game like that 21 to 17. So I feel really confident about that, about this one. I'm with you. Um, We will revisit our Vikings best team in the NFC discussion after things play out on Sunday. It's going to be hard to give that to them as much as I might want to, because one of the NFC East teams is going to be riding high. And now the main event CBS has made a promotional video for this game. They offered up none other than Phil Sims to this podcast. And you'll hear that interview later. The bills and the chiefs get excited. It is the game of the year. Do you know that the bills are favored by two points in Kansas city? I don't like that at all. I am all in on Patrick Mahomes doing whatever it takes to win football games. This is the rematch of the Titanic AFC championship game. And I think it is still very much in the heads of both teams. I think when you win a game like that, in that spot, when you're the Chiefs, when you have a track record of advancing deep into the playoffs, and you have the Buffalo Bills, who have been patted on the back and anointed as Super Bowl champs, well knowing that they have not come close to winning the games they need to win, to vanquish who they need to vanquish. I think that sits very heavy on them. And I think we'll talk intangibles here because when you have two great teams, so often it comes down to what's between the ears. I think that the pressure is going to sit on the shoulders of Buffalo a tremendous amount. I think they're going to get off to a slow start. I think that Josh Allen is going to want to try to outplay Mahomes to make a statement, and he's certainly capable, but I think that's going to lead to some mistakes some pressing. I like Kansas City's ability to toy with opponents and especially do these things in the second half where they make adjustments. They can look terrible in the first half. The offense can look like it's any other offense. And then boom, Travis Kelsey has four touchdowns and you're wondering what the hell happened. I'm so excited to watch this one. I like the Chiefs to do what needs to be done and win outright. The fact that they're underdogs will be extra motivation for them because if you had to ask me right now, what team do I trust most to win the Super Bowl? It is still Kansas City. This game would mean that the title still goes through Kansas City. And I don't think Buffalo can beat them there again. I know that it happened in the regular season last year. I think they got a little fat and giggly on that. But I think when it matters, like it does right now, Kansas City is still the side you have to back. They have so many options offensively. I mentioned Kelsey before, but their ability to move on and not miss Tyreek Hill at all has been surprising, I think, to everybody. And it's worth wondering if their offense is actually getting better. I am surprised that the Chiefs are underdogs. And as uh, you will hear probably a thousand times between now and Sunday, it is the first time in Patrick Mahomes' career that he is a home underdog with good reason. It's pretty shocking. Uh, the Chiefs do have their problems. They let the Raiders back into that game. You know, when they're when that offense is rolling, they're rolling. But when things are going bad, you know, they look like they did in the Colts loss. It looks like barely anybody on that team has played football before. It's very confusing. But even so, 
I mean, come on, underdogs at home against a team that they beat in the playoffs last year. Even if the rosters are different, there's still, as Kyle said, a mental edge here. I think that Vegas is kind of expecting us all to view this as a revenge game for Buffalo against uh, the Chiefs. I think that Vegas might be underestimating how much the Chiefs want to win this game and remind everybody that they are still the cream of the crop in the AFC, despite petering out late in the season last year. And now there wasn't really a lot to take away from the Bills beat down of the Steelers, to be honest with you. Gabriel Davis had three catches for 171 yards and two touchdowns. That's not going to happen again. And Buffalo had the personnel to defend Kansas City pretty well, especially without Tyreek Hill. But then they had the rash of injuries to the secondary. I think the Chiefs aren't going to have a lot of trouble passing the ball. They might have some trouble running the ball, but they aren't going to have trouble passing the ball. The blood is going to be up for this game. And I think it's very, very, very hard to not take the Chiefs as dogs in Arrowhead. That's an easy bet. Another easy bet for T. This is a much less... <laughs> Famous last words. Yeah, famous last words. A uh, much less shiny game, one that you will probably forget about as we all embrace the Patrick Mahomes-Josh Allen duel. There's a little game going on in Atlanta this weekend, 1 p.m. The Falcons versus the 49ers, and the Falcons are five-and-a-half-point underdogs. At home... You can sense a theme here. I have a hard time buying that teams, unless they are very bad, should be underdogs at home, much less big underdogs like the Falcons are here. The Niners got back to got back right with a beatdown win over the Panthers that led to them finally firing Matt Rule. Good for them. Not a sign of dominance. They did get back to the general formula where they – put up huge numbers on the ground. Jimmy G just makes a bunch of easy throws that are there because they're putting up huge numbers on the ground. And then suddenly you blink and the Niners have 37 points. That's the Kyle Shanahan formula with Garoppolo under center. But the Falcons are simply feistier than that. The Falcons almost came back and won against Tom Brady's Bucks. And depending on uh, who you ask about the severity of that roughing the passer penalty, they really should have at least had the opportunity to do so. They only lost by six. They covered last week, as we predicted. And I really like them. I think the Falcons are this year's uh, great cover team where they are consistently underrated in Vegas due to the fact that their record isn't very good, but they keep games close. They have playmakers. Arthur Smith still has his whole Kyle Pitts problem, but in the bigger picture has designed a very good running game that really helps utilize Marcus Mariota the best of his abilities. And I simply don't think the Niners are that good yet. They could round into form by the end of the season, but there's still a lot to figure out with Jimmy G. And there's still a lot of counters to be drawn up due to the fact that everybody knows exactly what Jimmy G is good at and what he is bad at. I think that the Niners are going to win this game, but I do not think it is going to be the kind of 37 to 15 affair that the Panthers game was. This NFC South matchup is going to be a lot more difficult for San Francisco and I love, love, love Atlanta at five and a half points today, uh, this weekend. 37 points is going to be an outlier. And the Panthers are a train wreck and they sport Baker Mayfield. And honestly, it was one of the easier picks. Uh, we should have put all our finances uh, on the 49ers last week. The Falcons have fight in them. And like you said, they play close games. Mariota has been good. There's kind of some correlation between what Mariota is doing and Geno Smith is doing, where you just have someone who knows how to play the position and can make plays with their legs. I think that's one thing against San Francisco's defense that not every team has the ability to draw upon. You know, they love to blitz. They're going to get pressure. But so if those pass rushers get too far upfield you know that can result in scrambling for first downs moving the clocks moving the chains and I think anytime when you are trying not to lose big with your bets when you have five and a half points the key is shortening the game San Francisco does that by themselves and I think that Arizona moves the chains and keeps that clock ticking by running the football that the possessions are going to be low in this game so even in a situation where San Francisco dominates there could be that opportunity for the backdoor touchdown. Like it's very easy to see this being a 10 point game with two minutes left. And 
the Falcons driving down and getting a cosmetic touchdown and failing to recover the onside kick. I love that. I am confident that we are going to eclipse the 500 mark. It's going to happen one of these weeks. We, we beg you, just stay with us. We will wear our losses. But this is my promise to you. We will get there. We will get there. My guest today is Phil Sims. He's an analyst on the NFL today and inside the NFL. It's a big week as we have Buffalo, Kansas City airing on CBS. We're all talking about this being the game of the year right now, but what do you think the chances are when we look back at the end of the season that it actually was the game of the year? Oh, I think our expectations are so high that I just don't see any way it can live up to it. <laughs> so I think what happened, what we saw in the playoffs last year, the fact that they played each other a little bit over the last couple of years, I would expect it to slow the game down a little bit, to be a little safer on defense from both sides to try to, you know, to stop these two quarterbacks. So that's just my first thought. But the difference between not long ago, that playoff game, there's about 13 or 14 different starters on these teams this year compared to last year. So just like the NFL, everything changes every year. Um, a lot going on. Offenses change. You got to get new plays, but a lot of new players. So it'll be interesting to see how it goes. Some of the commentary has been that there was going to be a hangover, of course, the 13 seconds that decided everything last time. But it sounds like you're saying that there's enough new blood in there that it'd be easier to move on. And it'll be a totally different atmosphere. How much does something like that stick with someone when you suffered like a crushing loss? I got to assume you want to get back out there and get a chance at vindication, but is it harder to prepare because you're distracted by that? Oh, I don't think they'll be distracted. You know, listen, the fact that, uh, well, both teams, the Buffalo bills made mistakes at the end of the game that they will not make now. And, you know, once the game starts, all your preparation, who you are and what we learned about each other, it, it'll come through. Uh, it's just going to be, I, I don't know. I, I know Buffalo, when the offseason starts for them after losing to Kansas City, their number one priority is what? We're going to go, we have to get a big time pass rusher. And they didn't try to draft one. They went out and got Von Miller. And that's why they brought him in. I, and I hate that kind of cliche. That's why we brought you in for this kind of game. But it really is true. They brought Bob Miller in for the Kansas City Chiefs and maybe a couple other teams too, but uh, mainly for the Kansas City Chiefs to give them a better defense and a better chance to win. I know what everybody says about preparing each week as if it's the only game that matters, but what does it actually feel like to go into a game against an 0-5 team versus someone that you are have circled as definitely someone who's going to be standing in your way come playoff time? Uh, it's, it's my um, learning experience in the NFL. When you're playing an 0-5 team, that makes you nervous because are we going to respect them? Are we going to be ready? Are we putting enough plays in? Did we practice well enough? Because where's the motivation? Do you think the Buffalo Bills and Kansas City Chiefs are not going in every day now this week with energy because they know how big the game is and they know that we got to play really well and do a lot of special things to have a chance to win the game. So, you know, playing the good teams, I always found my coaches in the NFL, when we played the good teams, it wasn't like, oh, we got to get ready, but playing teams that had bad records and we didn't think were very good, they were worried that we wouldn't do the work, wouldn't be emotionally ready and things like that. So I don't think we have to worry about this game. It's going to, it's going to be emotionally um, on fire and physically on fire too. Last night on Inside the NFL, in picking the Bills, you said that the offense doesn't really want to play offense. They want to assault you. Oh, that's what they do, yes. How, how is that different than what Kansas City does, and why do, you, why do you see it as a more physical challenge if that's what it is? I, I think Buffalo, is, it kind of reminds me of Kansas City really from a couple years ago when I watched the Buffalo Bills. You know, I try to watch all these big – well, I try to watch them all every week, but – uh, the Buffalo Bills, it's like a track meet. I mean, I just go, oh, my God, how many times have we got to throw the ball 40 and 50 yards down the field? And it's not only the ones you see on TV, it's all the ones we don't see. In other words, he might get rid of the ball quicker, Josh Allen. But they're uh, creative uh, plays to get the football down the field and their wide receivers and the play calls. 
it's, I think it's about as aggressive as there is in the league, probably the most aggressive. And Josh Allen can throw it 60 yards like you and I go out in the backyard and lob it 10. Uh, so that's kind of why I say it. It's just hold on and hold your breath almost every play because you don't know when Josh Allen's going to release one of those long throws down the field to a really good receiving core. Any part of you surprised that the Chiefs offense is continuing to do what it does absent Tyreek Hill? Or did you expect them, everybody to kind of round into form because they have so many weapons? And then you talk about the advantage uh, on the play calling side as well. Yeah, I mean, look, it's real. Uh, listen, the quarterback and the coach, it, it's real. We can't say enough and overstate it. Patrick Mahomes is special. Uh, I think Patrick Mahomes has been, what's the word? To, been quieter this year in other words he's letting the play there it is I'm going to do it he's not looking to move around quite as much and they're definitely not and I don't even know what the stats say because I don't care I'm going on my perception watching the games and feeling it and all that and seeing what they're designing it it, it definitely is a more under control passing game I don't see as many shots down the field that I did with Tyreek Hill but other guys too it's just not the Tyreek Hill factor but it does cut it down some. Yeah, they still got speed. McCole Hardman, my gosh, these guys can all run, but people are ready for it. And what's happened in the NFL too? We got a lot of defenses that are doing what? Their number one thing is, let's don't give up a big play. So they're making quarterbacks be a little more patient. And Patrick Mahomes has done that. And I think this year is even better at it than he was last year. It seemed like the plan last year was to make the scoring drive take 12 or 13 plays as, as instead of four. And it really does seem like he's matured from what we saw against Cincinnati in the second half. Yeah. Well, Cincinnati, I, I'm not even going to take anything. I'm not even going to get on Kansas city for that because the Bengals just came out and, you know, a lot of people, they came out with a whole different philosophy and it kind of caught them by surprise. And it was really good, really clever, extremely well coached. And they had all the answers and it was really tough, I think, for Kansas City to adapt and couldn't make it happen. And, you know, of course, Cincinnati's offense started playing well, too. But, um, you know, I gave all the credit to the Bengals and not so much against the uh, Chiefs because I think they did catch caught them by surprise. The Bengals defensively, and here I'm saying it after they made a few mistakes against the Baltimore Ravens the other night, but they don't make mistakes. They're not the most talented physically, but they do a lot. They're great game planners, and uh, that's that's the big reason why they beat the Kansas City Chiefs in that game last year. Novices like me who tend to dip into the artistic side are kind of struggling to figure out new ways to describe the greatness of Patrick Mahomes and Josh Allen. What right. do you see as someone who understands the position intimately as something that they do that maybe people at home don't appreciate how excellent they really are at it? Oh my gosh. I don't think I can listen. I think we all know it. It's just, I don't, you know, I don't have a clever answer for it. I think there's a couple of things. Josh Allen is something they don't, we don't talk about enough. He can go from the first receiver, the second receiver to the third receiver. We hear that phrase all the time. He can do it as quick and as good as anybody in the NFL. I mean, he can really rip through them. And then of course, uh, you know, we always look at certain stats with quarterbacks. Oh, he's completing 66% of his passes. You know, I don't care. To me, they're, they're going to, the league is um, telling you you're going to probably a good percentage of your passes because we got a lot of short ones. But Josh Allen, Patrick Mahomes, they can be aggressive and throw the football into tight spots that only about five guys in the league can do. And I don't think we give those guys enough credit. We think every throws the same, every quarterback throws the same. No, there's a vast difference. I mean, a big difference. When you go from the top five or six and get down to 20, it's a major difference. And I think that we have to sit back, recognize that, and give them a lot of credit for the talent they have, and they show it on the field too. So big picture, we always lament that there's only maybe a dozen to 15 quarterbacks that anybody wants on their team, at least from the fan bases. Right. And you just right. mentioned that five or six can make those passes that make them special. Do you think that we're ever going to get to a time through the evolution of the position where there are more quarterbacks are capable or will it always kind of be like the top 25, 30% really differentiate themselves from the field? 
Well, there's always going to be that group that's going to stand out, even though I think there's more quarterbacks in the league than ever before that can that are capable of winning Super Bowls if they're on the right team. I, you know, I'm just going to throw a number out. I'm going to say there's 20 right now that, that you know, give them a decent supporting cast. They can play their role, but they're, but you know, some guys that what really differentiates them all. There's a group that can do it if they're if they got the people around to get it done because they got a lot of talent. But then there's the other group that, hey, they can be a little below the talent level you expect, but they are truly going to lift you up. And, you know, we're talking about two guys in this game. They make a lot of plays with their arm, with their legs, with their smarts. It goes on and on that very few quarterbacks in the league can compete against that. And uh, so no matter what, how good they all get, which the league is, this is the best quarterback league I've, I've seen in my lifetime. But there's always going to be a group that stands out above the rest. And we're going to judge the rest of them on these top five, which is not fair, but that's the way it is. I don't know what else to say. You know, I want to bring you back um, from the transition from playing to being in media. And quarterback is maybe the most assessed and discussed position in all of professional sports. Considering that you have all, yeah, or flat out is. Maybe that's not even a, a debate. When you have the knowledge of all that it takes. And I got to imagine that comes with an appreciation for everything that people are doing out there. But then you also know that the mistakes that you could fall into, did you find it hard to be objective or did you find yourself naturally being too critical or too appreciative? And how did you hone your ability to kind of strike that right chord? I think I understand what's good and bad without question. I'm not worried about being critical or too critical. I, I do this. To, I said this to some guys, some ex-players who are in the business recently. And I just said to them, I said, you know, our job as broadcasters or people that are talking about the NFL is to tell the truth about the players and coaches. So we need to know the truth, tell the truth and do it that way. And, that, and I've always felt that way. I think that's my job. And people go, oh, you know, you got to be, I can be critical and I am critical a lot. And sometimes maybe too much as I get older, maybe I'm a little too honest. I don't know. But I do know right and wrong. And a lot of times I'll hear TV, and I'm a big TV watcher as I work during the week. I hear people get on there and criticize somebody. And I go, it's just not true. All they're doing is looking at the numbers. And if you play on a really tough team or a bad team that's not that good and all that, you're not going to be a superstar and it's not going to stand out because your team can't support your talent. So I think I understand that. I think overall, yeah, if I made some statements that I probably regret, but overall, I understand, and that's why I work at what I do, because I want to tell the truth. I don't want to make it up. You just said something to me earlier. I said, I don't know the numbers. I don't care. I'm going on my perception, what I see and what I feel, which I, I hate to be this way, but I know it's right. That's, that's do you what think makes that, me feel good about my job. I know I'm telling the truth. Has it been harder as everybody has become obsessed with the numbers and the analytics to bring that other element that you enter into the conversation to feel like that is appreciated as much? Do you think we've like, you know what I mean? I I think that I enjoy the numbers. And like you said, um, people who are just looking at them to base their conclusions are missing a whole element of it. But it does seem like we just diminish like the human side of, of people playing sports and all that goes into it. Yes. I mean, I think the numbers can tell a part of the story, but then you have to really understand the game, the team, who they are, what they're asked to do so many factors into it. You know, uh, just, just for instance, I'll just run up top of my head to one Carson wins. Oh, he's terrible. Really? Are you watching him? I mean, the big plays he's making the great throws. Oh, that's right. He gets hit every time he throws the ball. But let's don't take that into account. We just don't like Carson Wentz from what he did at the end of this Philly career and then what happened in Indy last year. But so those, and I don't even know what his numbers are. You know why? Because I don't care. Because I watch him and go, oh my God, what a throw. Oh my God, he just got run over. You know, those kind of things. So uh, generally, I don't mean, and I appreciate the numbers to a degree, but I want to put them in context with other things that makes the picture full. And a lot of times when I hear somebody start out with a bunch of numbers, you know, under pressure, he's this and this. What does that mean? What does it mean? So if I'm under pressure with the Buffalo Bills or the Kansas City Chiefs, 
I got some really good players. I might be under pressure, but they're going to be wide open. What if you're on a team where they can't get open when there's pressure put on? But so who's going to judge that? So that's why you got to be, I think you got to be very careful about numbers. You know, quarterback, uh, what's the quarterback rating QBR? I don't think I've ever looked at one in my life and I never will. I mean, it might go there and I go, oh yeah, who cares? I don't care because it just, it's too many subjective things in there. And I always find this too. I, if you show me a quarterback, well, I shouldn't say this really, but I'll try to make a point. If they complete over 70% of their passes, then they're not taking enough chances. You know, you're being too careful, too little short passes, not being aggressive enough, throwing into tight spots, making big plays. I mean, that's maybe an overstatement, but I'm just trying to make a point too. What if they go 22 or 25 though? That's pretty good. Oh, he didn't take any chances. <laughs> I know what you said. Hey, hey, sometimes it just works out. I don't know what else to say, but I didn't, um, for that game, I did throw a lot of close passes too, though. So uh, at least I feel somewhat good about that. Uh, you know, you're not the only person who's making the decision. There's producers uh, who are working with you on this, but what's the difference between a good Sunday topic before the game and a good topic for inside the NFL? Because you have differing levels amount of time you're able to make a point. Yeah, it's different. You know, being in the studio for inside uh, for the NFL today, uh, it's different from inside the NFL. The inside the NFL is a little more time to talk and you can make points that you that we can on Sunday. We're trying to cover a lot of games on Sunday. We're inside the NFL. We don't do that. We just pick out a few segments and do that. We're trying to cover the whole league in a one hour show, which can be hard. But, um, you know, and it's 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 a lot of hard work during the week, Kyle, just because of this I'm looking for two lines, maybe three lines and a whole statement to encompass what I want to try to get accomplished. And I rack my brain all the time up going, how can I say this when I know I've got about 20 seconds, but I really want to make this point. And I, and you can, so it's tough, but I, you know, every year, I think, I hope I get a little better at that. And uh, in fact, just before you and I started talking, I'm circling things and phrases that I've written down about all the games as I watch them to say, okay, I'm going to say these two little phrases and, hopefully that'll make everybody understand what I'm trying to get across to them. And that's very common. I just had Ernie Johnson on and he said the exact same thing. He was looking for something, one or two sentences that could stand out. Now he's going to have you and you're going to have 95% of your work. You're never going to use, but if you, at least, you know, the big things that you want to hit, you make sure that you've presented what you've already kind of self-edited. Is that kind of the thought process? Yeah, you know, listen, Ernie's right, but you know, the difference between what we do and Ernie Johnson and them do, they get like 30 minutes of time here and there to talk. They'll talk for 20 minutes straight without a commercial. I mean, we're, we're never going to do that. Uh, but, you know, learning it, even though I don't get it on weekends, it's always in the back of my head and it might come out with an interview with you, but sooner or later, it's going to come out everywhere. You know, I just go, it, it just comes out. And, uh, you know, that's why I write a lot of things down during the week and, and, I, and, I, and here we are Thursday, I'll start circling comments that I've made about watching games that, oh, that's interesting. Nobody said that. And I'm going to go with that, you know, so and to say something that nobody else has said, that's what I'm usually trying to look for and try to do. Last question. going to ask you to be introspective here. Uh Oh, uh oh, I know. Uh, yeah. Brace yourself. What do you hope people at home feel about you as a broadcaster? What impression do you want to give them? Uh, I, I'd like for them to think that I'm honest and I'm trying to tell them something like we've talked about, um, uh, uh, try to do justice to the game. You know, I love, I love the, the game. I, man, I, I tell you, I, I was a baseball player growing up. Most of them, I said, Oh, I want to play baseball, baseball. And then there was something about football and it really came to this. It's just so hard. That's why I liked it. And, uh, so at home, I hope they, in, that I come across as a somewhat nice guy. I don't know. And I try to be and uh, to tell them something and just talk about football in terms that maybe they don't hear constantly on TV. I mean, that's the other thing. We have so much information to the fans on TV and radio and newspapers now that you really do have to dig in there and find something that's really unique to yourself or new to everybody that you've learned to give to the fans. That's Phil Sims. You can see him on the NFL today and inside the NFL. 
Bills Chiefs on Sunday. It'll be the game of the year and the century, possibly the millennium. So <laughs> I really appreciate it. All right, Kyle. Thanks. A lot of fun. Thanks for having me on. Love to have. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.